more than anything in the world, little Roger Bowman wanted his family to be back together. He wanted to be back as a family and everything go back to normal. And when he asked his dad about the possibility of that happening, his dad simply said, well, when the angels win the pennant, that's when that's going to happen, which was a problem uh, because even though Roger was a huge Angels fan, the Angels were the worst league. The California Angels were the worst team in the league. And so he took his dad's words very literal and he prayed to God. You saw in that video that uh, God would help the Angels win if there was a God. And so the next game, uh, Roger goes to the game and he sees uh, these angels that come, this group of angels come and they actually help the team win the game. And this group of angels are, are led by this particular angel named Al. And uh, every one of them, including now, are invisible to everybody except Roger. Roger is the only one, and this little boy is the only one in a stand full of people or, or a crowd full of people. He's the only one that can see them. And so at first, the manager of the team is very skeptical. He thinks, ah, oh, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. And then he starts to believe that if nothing else, having this kid around is good luck. When this kid is there, the team seems to be doing better. And so he keeps him around. Eventually, the manager starts to believe that Roger can actually see these angels. And so he develops this secret symbol or signal for Roger to let the manager know, hey, this is what's happening. There are angels here. Play this guy or don't play that guy or hit it here. And so he develops these secret sig signals to let them know that he sees these angels. And if you've seen the movie, you know that with the help of the angels, the California angels, the baseball team actually turns their season around and they start racing up uh, the charts. They become the top of their division. Now, many of you I know are way too young to remember that movie. And I don't know why, but that's the movie that came to my mind when I was working through this passage this week. Uh, but this idea of angels, even if you're too young to remember that movie, chances are you can think of a movie or a show really quick, just off the top of your mind, that has to do with angels. There are a ton of them out there. In fact, there's even an Angels in the Infield. There's a playoff of that called Angels in the End Zone. I didn't know that until I was looking it up this week. So there are tons of movies and television shows that are about angels. In fact, I, let's be honest, uh, most of us probably know more about angels through watching TV than we probably do about them through the actual Bible, all right? And so that's probably not a good thing, all right? Because the, the Hollywood version of angels and what we see in Christmas pageants of angels is probably not a great picture what angels actually look like. But when it comes to the subject of angels, people either tend to go one of two ways. We either totally kind of neglect the subject, like they're just kind of out there and we just don't acknowledge them. We don't, even if we, if they are out there, we just, we're just not going to pay any attention to them. Or they go to the other extreme where there's, there's this over a fascination with them. There's almost this obsession with them. And, and throughout history, kind of uh, societies have kind of fluctuated between those two, either denial of them or uh, they're there, but we don't pay attention to them. To that. They're really this fascination with them, this, and the, this kind of mystification and enthralling with the angels. And uh, for a long time, uh, societies viewed angels as these spiritual beings that were kind of these intermediates. They kind of acted uh, on God's behalf. And so they were the ones that did God's will and God's stuff here on earth. So they kind of were in between God and the physical world that we live in. And so they were these mysterious, mystical creatures that had these amazing abilities. There were times in history that they thought if you got a visit from an angel, uh, then you were highly favored by God, all right? And so they would base some of that loosely on Scripture. Not only did not, so not only did you want to have a visit from an angel because then you were highly favored by God, but they also believed that if you were visited by an angel, then you may be able to 
capture some of that angel's amazing abilities, that you may have some superhuman abilities or strength that you didn't have before. So there are a lot of folks that really wanted to be visited by an angel, which sounds really cool, except if you read the Old Testament, every time, even the New Testament, every time somebody is greeted by an angel or an angel shows up unexpectedly, what's the first thing they say? Don't be afraid. Which lets me know they are terrifying beings, okay? So you may be wanting to see an angel. I'm okay not seeing one until I get to heaven, all right? Because there's something terrifying about them. The very first thing they have to tell you is, calm down. It's all right. I'm not here. I'm not, I'm not going to hurt you, okay? Uh, and so they, they've kind of seen them, and people have been in, 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 enthralled by them, and some have even exalted angels beyond what they should be. They uh, have, have come to where they worshipped angels, and some have prayed to their guardian angels for protection. And uh, they've kind of elevated angels and in, in doing so downgraded Christ so that uh, they are kind of on equal footing with each other. They kind of have equal status with each other. But one of the things the writer of Hebrews lets us know pretty clearly is that is not the case. That's not a correct view of angels or of Christ. In fact, he starts in verse 4 of chapter 1, um, which we're going to read you through this morning, starting in verse 4 of chapter 1, reading through the end of the chapter. And he spends the rest of this chapter devoted to how Christ is greater than the angels. He gives us five different ways that Christ is greater, He's higher, He's better than the angels. And I love this passage not just because it connects Christ with angels and, and shows us how those two are compared to each other or contrasted with each other, but I love this passage because this is a beautiful passage because what it allows us to do is increase our knowledge of who Christ is, which becomes a extremely important because there are two groups that will call themselves Christians, that, that will hold on, we are Christians, and, and, and we believe just like everybody else that's Christians do, except we will see that their beliefs are very different than you and I, right? In fact, one of them would say that they are real Christians, and you are, are, are not Christians at all, okay? We don't understand who Jesus is at all. And so I love this passage because it allows us to use this knowledge, use God's Word to look at these two groups and say, hey, here's why we believe what we believe about Jesus. So let's jump in the text this morning, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, and we'll read down through verse 14. Verse 4 of Hebrews 1 starts off, and it says, So he, talking about Jesus, became higher in rank than the angels, just as the name that he inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, "All, uh, excuse me, and all God's angels must worship him." And about the angels, he said, "He makes his angels wings and his servants a fiery flame." But to the Son, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and your scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That is why God, your God has anointed you with an oil of joy rather than your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will wear out like clothing, and you will roll them up like a cloak. They will be changed like a robe, but you are the same, and your years will never end. Now, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool? Finally, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. 
God, we thank you that we have an awesome God. A God that we worship and a God that we praise. And I thank you, God, that we have a God who loves us beyond all measure. God, not just a God who created, but a God who intervened and a God who stepped into his creation, not for your sake, but for our sake. God, so that we may become clean. God, I pray this morning that you open our eyes to the beauty of this passage. I pray that you open our eyes to the deep theology that is here in a way that we can understand it. God, I pray that you open our eyes to who you are and what your son has done. God, I pray this morning that we will see very clearly how your son is so superior to anything that we've ever tried to, to pin our lives on in the past. God, I pray this morning that we will see how he compares with these angels through your text. But God, I pray that above just the knowledge that we gain of this text this morning, I pray, God, that we will listen with open ears because, God, I pray that we are challenged to live out this text in a mighty way. And so, God, I pray that you speak. And God, I pray that we are ready to listen to you, not just with ears, but with our heart and with our soul and our mind. And God, I pray that we're ready to listen with our lives and live out this passage, Father. So, God, I pray that you speak. And I pray that we listen, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Long ago, there lived a wolf killer. And his residence was a stone house in a village whose ancestors were contiguous shepherds whose sheep were well-fed and carefully guarded against attacks by ferocious enemies, and whose ancestors 12,000 years before the first earthman in a spaceship made of tungsten and seven erodium motors used light as a source of power. Starting a long journey across interstellar space searching for a star around which they could find an inhabitable planet where they could establish a new race of intelligent mankind and where they would live long, happy lives and be free from attacks from other interstellar creatures from the outer space from whence they came. Now some of you are scratching your heads right now and you're trying to figure out why in the world is the pastor talking about spaceships made of uranium and, and uh, tungsten and why are we talking about these things flying through outer space? And I know that sounds like a crazy story, but what's interesting about that story is that that story is encapsulated into one German word, right? Now to be honest with you, Germans are notorious for taking words and combining them together and make really long words. That's sort of how we got the word kindergarten, okay? It's actually two different words kinder and garden and so you nurture and you grow children in kindergarten that's what you do and so Germans do this all the time they take two words or three words and they combine them and they make really long words okay now this one's a little extreme because this word is huge it is massive but all that I just read to you is the English translation of one German word that word is 666 letters long right here it is on the screen and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce that word for you because I, I wouldn't make it past the first line of it, right? That is the German word that I just read to you the English translation of. Now, what makes this, this word so fascinating, and the reason I'm bringing this up to you, is because, believe it or not, this is someone's name. This is someone's last name. And he came up with this last name out of a protest of a 19th century German law. And in 19th century Germany, um, the, they required that German or Jews take on a second name. Right? They had to come up with a German last name for their family versus the Jewish last name they were kind of accustomed to. Because most days, in, or most time in Jewish customs, it was 
Uh, my son Malachi would be Malachi, the son of Michael. Okay, And so then his son would be whatever he wanted to be, the son of Malachi. And so it was really hard to trace germ or, or Jewish heritage unless you knew your family really well. Okay, So the Germans said, no, listen, we need you to come up with a German-sounding name for your last name. And so the Jews, the German Jews did not like this because the, this wasn't the way they did things. And so there was this one very, I guess, intelligent guy, maybe he was intelligent, maybe not, that this was the name that he came up with. When he had to give his final, this is my final last name, this is my family's name, this is what he gave them. And he made them write it down, right? And so the family, of course, had some fun with this name, and so they have, they have had this name for, for generations, and, and they've kind of had fun with authorities hated this name because that's what it had to look like every single time. Um, the computers at the time could process millions of pieces of information, but they could not process this last name. And so his life insurance policy had to be handwritten because the computer could not process his last name. All right? And so the family had tons of fun with this name. In fact, they, they, sometimes they changed it, sometimes they, they messed with it a little bit. And uh, there was one, this guy who came up with this name, his, his great-grandson uh, had even a greater name because his great-grandson inherited 27 different names. Okay, the first 26 start with a different letter of the alphabet. So his first or the start of his name is Adolf, Blaine, Charles, David, Earl, Frederick, and it goes all the way through the letter Z. And then he gets this 666 letter last name. That's quite a name. The Guinness World Book of Records and the Book of, of Useless Information and even the American Name Society, which I didn't know there was such a thing, they recognized um, Herbert Wolfston or Herbert Blaine Wolf plus 590 Senior, which they, that's what they used it for short instead of writing the whole thing out. Herbert Blaine Wolf literally plus 590 other letters Senior. Uh, that this, they have recognized him as the person having the longest name. Now, to be honest, there have been people since him that have had longer names. So if you look up who has the longest name in the world, this is not going to be it. However, this one is different because all the other names that have been longer since his, and he died, uh, I think, in the 60s, but since him, every name that has been longer than his since then have been because people changed their name. They wanted this record, and so they changed their name so they could get this record. And one lady, she was doing it as some kind of fundraising thing, and so she changed her name, and now she's got over a thousand letters in her name. But what makes him distinct, and what gives him this distinct title, is because he is the person who at birth was given the longest name that they have any record of, even in history. And so his name will forever be superior and noteworthy because his name, the name that he inherited, is longer than anybody else. It outranks any other name that has been given to a human being. And so the writer of Hebrews kind of picks up on this idea and he says, listen, that the, the name that is given to Jesus is noteworthy because it is higher than any other name that is out there. The writer spends the rest of chapter one, we made it through the first three verses last week and talked about how Jesus was an exact replica of God, how he had radiance of God's glory, and, and how him and, and God are basically one and the same. Right? So we spent a lot of time dealing with that in the first three verses. And then what he does in several different points throughout the book of Hebrews is that he says that Jesus is compared to whatever. Right? And so he starts with the subject of angels. So starting in verse 4 all the way through verse 14, he really contrasts Jesus with the angels and says that Jesus is greater than the angels in these different ways. And the first way is that his name is so much greater and bigger than all of the names of the angels. I want you to look with 
me in verse 4, and you'll see what I'm talking about. In verse 4, he simply says this, So he became higher in rank than the angels, just as his name, or as the name that he inherited, is superior to theirs. Now, I want you to notice how he says the name that he inherited. Because just like Herbert, Jesus' name has never changed. It has always been superior. It has always been above. And this is the name he inherited. This is the name he was given. It wasn't that he went by one name and then he did something and inherited a different name that made him something different. Okay, so I want you to understand the name that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is significant because this has always been his name. Now, the reason I'm stressing that is because one of the groups I told you about that claims to be Christians has a very different theology than you and I do about Christ. What they would tell you about Jesus is that Jesus was at one time Michael the archangel. Now, some of you may know this. There are actually only two names of angels given in the Bible. There are Michael and there are Gabriel. Right? That's the only two that we have that are named in the Bible. Right? So if you hear all the other names, they're, they're, they're coming from different traditions and stuff like that. But what this Mormon church will tell you, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, their official theology is simply this, that Michael the archangel has been in heaven for a really long time. And then God picked him and said, now I need you to go to earth and do something special for me. And when Michael the archangel came to earth to do his mission here, he came by the name of Jesus. And then Jesus died on the cross, he rose and he went up to heaven, and now he's reclaimed this angelic role. So he is really just an angel who came to earth for a short period of time, and now he went back up to be Michael the archangel again. So notice the theology there that he was Michael, and then he became Jesus, and now he went back to be Michael again. All right? So understand that they may claim to have the same view of Jesus that you and I have, but their view of Jesus is very, very different. And we can look at this name, why it's so different, because the idea that this is the name that Jesus inherited, this is the name he was given. He didn't change it to Jesus to become more significant. He didn't change it to become Christ, which is not a name, it's a title. He didn't change his name to be significant. He was already significant. In fact, there is no changing of it whatsoever. And so the theology that he was Michael the archangel, is never backed up in the Bible. It's never seen in the book of Hebrews. It's never anywhere in the Bible. And if you look at verse 5, you'll see the writer of Hebrews makes it explicitly clear that Jesus is not now, nor has he ever been, nor will he ever be an angel, even Michael the archangel, which in my opinion is the coolest of all the angels just because his name is Michael, right? But his name is what makes him superior to all of them. And so I want you to look with me in verse 5 what the writer says. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today, or excuse me, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now this verse is, it shows us that he has a name that's above every name. And this name that's superior to all others, this is the name that God calls him by. And is that you are my son. Jesus is the son of of God, right? And now I want you to be clear that notice this word when he talks about this, this is singular in stance, that you are my son, singular, right? Not sons with an S. This is not plural. And the reason that's significant is because there are times in the Bible, right, in the book of Job, where God refers to the angels as sons of God, right? There are times even in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, 
And in the book of uh, um, Galatians, where he talks to humans or about humans, and, and we as Christians are being the sons of God. But notice every time he refers to angels or humans as being sons of God, it's always in the plural sense. He never addresses an angel or a human in a singular sense here. You see, you and I are sons of God, but we are not the son of God. That is the distinct title. It's very different. The angels are sons of God. Collectively, that's who they are because they're His creation. But they are not the Son of God. The angels are sons, but they are not the Son. And so the point the writer is making here is simply this, that, that he's using this rhetorical question, to which of the angels did God ever single out like He's doing Jesus here? To which one did He ever single out as His Son, singular, being only one. To which of the angels did he ever give this divine title to? To which of the angels did he ever share his substance or his nature with? Right? And, and when we say that, we see this passage in verse 5 where it says, Today I have become your father. The root word there in, in Hebrews 1, 5 for become is the same root word that many of us grew up in John 3, 16. Right? And if you grew up in this tradition that had an older translation, he is the only begotten son, which means he is the same substance and the same identity and the same character and nature of God. So meaning this, who angels, which angel did God ever share his nature with? To which of the angels did God ever share his identity with? To which of the angels did he ever share his substance or his glory with? And, and, and the writer of Hebrews is asking this in a rhetorical question because everybody reading this will be familiar with all these Old Testament passages. By the way, he quotes two of them right here. And everybody would have said, none of them. To which of the angels did God exalt to this position that he says, you are my son? To which one did he ever claim this title? He never told it to Gabriel. He never told this to Michael. He never told this to any of the other thousands of angels. That he never proclaimed they are the son like he does to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, in Jesus being baptized, God speaks from heaven. He says, this is my beloved son. I take delight in in him, and again on the mountain of transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, he says, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And so the point the Hebrews is making is God never spoke like that to any of the angels. He never singled one out and said, you are different than anything else in this world. You are my son. He, you together are my children, but this one is different. He never claimed that to the angels. He never claimed it to Michael. He never claimed it to Gabriel. He never claimed it to any of them. This is the name that is above all names. This is the name that sets Jesus above and beyond everything else. This is the name that Paul talks about. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, when he writes this, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the name that's above all names. But I want you to notice the second thing that Paul writes here, is what, and the writer of Hebrew picks up on, is that those that are not just those that are on earth are worshiping, but those that are in heaven are bowing down to this name as well. You see, they are worshiping Him. This is the second contrast the writer of Hebrew draws between Jesus and the angels, that Jesus is worshiped and the angels are not. They have a job to do and their job is to worship Him. He is the one that is to be worshiped and they are the ones doing the worship. He is the object of worship, not them. They are the ones doing the worship. And in verse 6, the writer makes this clear. 
And he says in verse 6, when he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says that all God's angels must worship him. Now, this is a beautiful, important passage here because there's two things that really should jump out of the first one. He refers to Christ as the firstborn. All right? Now, when the Bible speaks of firstborn, it's not necessarily a chronological idea. Okay? We tend to think of firstborn meaning that, that that's the oldest son. Okay? Literally, chronologically, that's the first kid that's born. But when the Bible uses that term, it's not exclusive to the firstborn. There are several times the Bible refers to someone who's not actually the chronologically firstborn as the firstborn. So what it really means is this is a status, not a chronological situation. The firstborn is the one who has the birthright. He is the one who outranks everything else. And so by Jesus or God referring to Jesus as the firstborn, what he's saying is that Jesus outranks everything else in this world, that his stature is more important than anything else. Than all of creation, including the angels, he outranks them all. But then we read the second part, which is amazing as well, because they know this, and they actually exalt him, the angels exalt him in worship. The last part of that verse said that all God's angels must worship him. You see, he is the object of this angelic worship. He is the one that they worship. And I will take you to Revelation chapter 5. If you've got time, you can turn there. If not, the words are going to be on the screen. But I want to take you to a beautiful picture in heaven. John is called up into heaven and he gets a chance to go into the very throne room of God and he gets a glimpse of this angelic worship that is happening around the son of Jesus in Romans or excuse me Revelation chapter 5 starting in verse 11 he writes this he says then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and of the elders their numbers also countless thousands plus thousands of thousands in verse 12 they said with a loud voice the lamb who was slain is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and under and on the sea, and everything in them say, blessed and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Verse 14, the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Can you just picture that in your mind for just a moment? Seeing the very presence of God. Seeing the very presence of God. And Jesus comes in and all of a sudden He is surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands. Countless numbers of angels and and souls that have gone on before us. And they are all gathered around this one Create or this one creation, this one creature, excuse me, that is Jesus. And they're all exclaiming the same thing. He is the one who is worthy. They're all bowing down to Him. They're all worshiping Him. He is the one who we give honor to. He is the one we give praise to. He is the one we adore. And all of these thousands and thousands and countless numbers of angelic beings, they are there and they are singing His praise. I can think of nothing else I want more in this life than to witness that right there. And some of you have got different goals in life and you want to see different stuff in life. Let me tell you, if that is not your goal right there, then you have sold yourself far short of what God has planned for you. That is the beauty of heaven and that is the greatness 
that awaits us, that we get to be once in the midst of the thousands of that. And so I want you to see what the point of the Hebrews is saying is in the midst of these thousands and thousands and thousands that are gathered, they're all worshiping Him, that He is the center of their praise. He is the object of their worship. He is the object of their devotion and adoration. They're pouring out their praise to Him. And Jesus is the one in the center of it all because He is the one being worshipped and the angels are the ones doing the worshiping. Never will you find the worship of angels in Scripture. What you will always find is the angels pointing you to Jesus. Why? Because He is the one that is to be worshipped and not them. And they know this and they worship Him partly because that He is their Creator and they are simply the creation that is made to worship Him. They worship Him simply because they owe their very existence to Him. He is the one who made them and they are eternally grateful to Him for their very existence. We read on in verse 6 and verse 7. The author quotes a couple different passages from the Old Testament here as well. And he shows that God is talking about the angels versus how God talks about or to Jesus. In verse 7, the, the writer says this, About the angels, he being God, says, He makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. And see, the angels are His creation, therefore they are His. They are His angels, they are His servants, they belong to Him. He created them, He made them, and so they are His. They are His possession, He owns them. But I want you to notice it's very different because when we get to verse 8, something changes. In verse 7, I want you to notice He's talking about the angels. This is what He says about the angels. And then we flip to verse 8. But to the Son, not about the Son... To the Son. Here God's not talking about the Son. He's actually talking to the Son, Jesus. But to the Son, your throne, God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of justice. Did you hear what He just called Him? This is God the Father, the God of all the universe, the God of all creation. And He looks at the Son, Jesus, and He says, God... And later he refers to him as Lord. You see, there's this other group. And the reason this is so important is because there's this other group who claims to be Christians who are very far away from the Christian realm. But they will claim to be Christians and they'll even come knock on your door and and they'll want to have a great little Bible study with you and share with you about the fact that, that they see Jesus in a different way than you do. And one of the first things they will tell you is that you and I are in trouble because we have worshiped a creation and not the Creator. Right? That we have worshipped something that was created versus the one who did the creating process himself. Right? So this other group will, will say that Jesus is not God, but he was the first thing that God created, and then we worship that creation. Now, I don't have time or energy right now to trace all that back and rebuke all that, uh, but we can do that some other time. But I want to show you just real quickly how this passage alone can rebuke that thought because we're going to let the Bible speak for itself very simply. Because in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, God very clearly sees that Jesus is divine, that He is equal to Him, that they are equally responsible and capable of creating, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, they all create together. There is not one who is the Creator and the others are the things that he made. They all work together. They are all the same, and it has to work that way. Otherwise, we've got a problem with our Bible. And so here's the problem if it doesn't work that way. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, many of you know it. The very first verse of the Bible simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right? And then if you flip over to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, it's talking about Jesus. And he says, In the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hand. 
Right? Now, they would take this passage and they would say, well, yeah, that the God created and this is the Lord created. Except the fact they skipped over verse 8 that says this is God talking to the Son, referring to the Son as you, Lord, created everything. You made these things with the works of your hands. And see, the only way that God the Father can create the heavens and the earth, and yet they be the works of the hands of Jesus Christ, is through the truth of Hebrews 1.8 that Jesus is God, that He is divine, that He's the Creator, and the angels know this. They are simply part of His creation. You and I should know this, that we are simply part of His creation. We are the creation. Angels are the creation. He is the divine Creator. He alone has that authority. He alone has that ability, and He exercises that ability greater and more than anything else. He is the one who is the Creator, and everything else is His creation. He is not a creation, and we cannot allow anybody with a theology that tells us that to stand on this passage of Scripture because it doesn't hold water when you look what the writer of Hebrews says. He alone is the Creator. And we started off with this video of angels in the outfield. And some of you might remember that when you, if you watch that movie, I won't spoil the whole thing for you because some of you will probably want to go watch that movie now because I mentioned Dario several months ago and several of you sent me photos of you being at Dario. And I don't know if you did that to test me and make me jealous um, or if you did that to say, hey, we really are listening and paying attention to your preaching, okay? At least when you talk about food. So some of you might go home and you might watch this movie. I don't know. But in this movie, if you've seen it, you might remember that uh, the, the angels, the California angels, man, they start to pick their game up and they really make this run late season. And in their final game, they're playing the Chicago White Sox. And Roger, the little boy, he's just sitting there because he knows this is going to be the greatest game ever and everything's going to work. And as the, as, the, as the game starts, his eyes are not looking to the field. He's looking up into the sky. He's looking for this group of angels that have been coming to help the, the California angels win all these games. And he's like, listen, they're going to show up. They're going to show up. And his little friend's like, are you sure? Are you sure they're coming? What if they don't come? And he's like, no, no, they're going to come. They're going to come. They've got to come. This is the most important game. This is, everything is right on this. My family is riding on this. This is what I was asking God for. And yet none of them show up except the leader, Al. And Al shows up just to tell Roger that, listen, there are some rules that the angels have to live by. And one of the rules in the angel world, according to this, video, according to this movie, which is not a biblical rule, okay, just so we're clear, is that angels can interfere in any game except championship games, okay? I don't know if you knew that or not, okay? So today, when your fantasy football team is playing, go ahead and pray that angels kick in. They can do that because it's not the, it's not the Super Bowl, okay? They can't interfere in the Super Bowl, according to angels in the outfield. They can't interfere in the World Series championship game. They can do anything else. But they're not allowed to intervene in a championship game. They can get you there, but once you're there, you are completely on your own. Now, i got to tell you, this is where the Bible and this movie picks up a little bit on the same thing because what we find is this is a difference between angels, even in Scripture, versus Jesus Himself. You see, thankfully, we never have to worry about that rule kicking in with Jesus because Jesus is eternal and He is permanent. We never have to worry about Him not being around when we need Him, about Him getting us to a certain point and then be like, oh, sorry, the rules say I can't come to that point, right? We never have to worry about Him hearing us and then all of a sudden Him leaving us all on our own. The writer of Hebrews in verse 10 talked about Jesus creating the heavens and the earth and then he acknowledges that those things are not going to last forever. In verse 11, He reveals this other great truth about Jesus and He talked about heaven and earth and He says, They, heaven and earth, will perish, but you 
remain. See, Jesus, this is the great truth, is self-existent. He, he doesn't owe His existence to this world. He doesn't owe this existence. If you and I stopped existing, Jesus still would. If you and I never existed, Jesus still would. If this world was never created and there were never life on this planet, God would still exist. Jesus would still be divine. He would still be there. He is self-existent. He doesn't owe His existence to this earth. And when this earth wasn't there, He was. When this earth stops being there, He will still be there. He is the same. Look with me in verse 12. He says, you will roll them up. Talking about the earth and the heavens. You will roll them up as a cloak and they will be changed like a robe. But you are the same and your years never end. We live in this world where they will tell you the only thing constant about this world is change. And the truth is the only thing constant about this world is the God who made it. You see, He never changes. In the midst of every other change that goes on in this world, and when this world is completely different tomorrow than it was today, He is still the same. And tomorrow morning, if you wake up and everything in your life is different, or this afternoon you walk out of here and you get a phone call and everything in your life is different. Today you're standing up and everything is great, and all of a sudden tomorrow you get this phone call and the rug is jerked out from under you and all of a sudden you are falling flat on your face. He is still the same. In your good days, in your bad days, He remains the same. In your terrible situations, in your great situations, He is the same. When life is going great and you got more money than you can roll over in the bank, He's the same. When life is struggling and you have no money in the bank, He is the same. He's just as dependable on your bad days as He is your good days. He's just as close to hand in your good times as He is the bad times. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why? Because He's eternal and He is permanent. He's not going to get you to a place and then leave you there. He's always the same. He's always has been, always will be, and forever will be eternal and permanent. And see, there's one last comparison that Hebrews makes about Jesus and the angels. And I'm going to be honest with you, this one is, is most often overlooked. In fact, I overlooked it. I read this passage several times, and I overlooked this, this short but strong statement about Christ uh, until it was pointed out to me in one of the commentaries I read. And it's simply the final way that we know Jesus is greater than the angels is simply that He sits and they serve. It's in verse 13, the writer asks this other rhetorical question. He says, Now to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Again, this rhetorical question. Some of you might know he's quoting Psalm uh, 110 in that passage. One of the Psalms that point us to Jesus, point us to the Messiah. Uh, but this is phrased as a question. To which of the angels did he ever say, hey, come over here and sit down? Because to sit down is to sit on the throne. And so the question is, to which of the angels did God ever say, hey, let you come over here and sit down on this throne. Let me share my glory with you. Come and sit on this place and in this throne. And of course, the answer is none. He's never done that. He's never invited an angel to come and sit. He's never looked at Michael and said, hey, you're the coolest angel of all time. Why don't you come and sit down for a little while? In fact, if you remember the Christmas story, even Gabriel, who before... He announces the birth of Christ, but he shows up to another guy named Zechariah, and Zechariah is shocked by him. And Gabriel's first response to him in Luke chapter 1 is, My name is Gabriel. I'm the one who stands in the presence 
of the Almighty. I'm the one who stands in the presence of God. Even Gabriel, the other angel that's named, doesn't get the privilege of sitting in the presence of God. I am the one who stands there, and I stand at attention, and I stand in His presence because I'm constantly ready to serve Him at a moment's notice. I want you to look with me in verse 14, the last verse. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? They don't sit because their job is to serve. They are to serve Him when He tells them to. They are to serve us and minister to us and aid us in as our walk through life. This is their job. And so rulers sit, but servants stand at attention. They are ready at all times. I read a story this week about Queen Victoria when she was the Queen of England, and she really appreciated art, but she was a terrible artist. And so she wanted to be a better painter. And so being the Queen of England, when you want to be a better painter, you hire someone to teach you to paint. And so she hired this guy. She brought this guy into the, the palace to teach her to paint. Now, she, that's not all. I mean, that's, that was his one job, was to teach her to paint, teach her art. Now, he's not going to do that 24 hours a day, but he's going to get to live in the palace 24 hours a day. And so as this guy was in the palace, and he would teach her certain things about art and teach her the lessons, and then she would have to go do something else. And he found himself with a whole bunch of free time standing there in the palace. And so uh, he enjoyed his free time. He would go stand over by the fires that were there, or he'd lean up on the hearth and warm himself up in just kind of this real relaxed, casual manner. And occasionally he noticed there were these huge chairs that, that nobody ever sat in. And so occasionally he would just walk over and he would just plop down and sit down in one of those chairs. And then he started to notice that every time he got comfortable, every time he sat down or every time he leaned up on the hearth, every time he got really relaxed, one of the other servants would call him and be like, hey, can you come look at this for me? Hey, have you seen this? And so he started to notice that every time he sat down or every time he got comfortable, somebody made him get up and move. He had to get up and he had to go look at something across the room or had to go do something. And what he said was that he found out that there was this unwritten rule, and it was simply this rule of manners that said that, um, excuse me, this, this rule of manners that simply said that it is not good manners, it is also wrong for any subject to have such a relaxed attitude, even in the presence of our queen. Servants don't sit. They stand. David Gusick, who told this story, writes this, that Jesus is not a subject. He is sovereign. He sits in the presence of the Almighty. He sits and everyone else stands. Jesus sits and they worship. Jesus sits and they praise Him. Jesus sits and they serve Him because they are His creation. Now, it's very easy to take this passage of Scripture and be like, wow, man, we've got an amazing Jesus, and just leave it right there. It's very easy to take this passage and kind of soak in some of the theology behind it and say, yeah, I believe this about Jesus. But let me tell you, this, this passage is not meant for you just to soak in theology. This passage, like all the rest of the Bible, is not meant for you just to learn it and have a head knowledge of it. It is meant for you to live it out. You see, here's the challenge of this passage. We have these creations that Jesus made. I want you to listen carefully to me this morning. That The angels worship Christ because He is their Creator. They owe their existence to Him. They praise Him and they serve Him simply because He is the one who made them. That's it. That's the only reason they have for doing what He says is because He is above them and He created them. 
But I want to share with you the challenge of this passage. It's not that they're worshiping Him. It's that we have a reason to worship Him. You see, we are also His creation. We are also owe our existence to Him. But let me tell you, we have an even greater reason to fill in where they leave off. We have an even greater reason to stand up and to worship and to be ready to serve Him. Because He's not only our Creator, but He is also our Redeemer. We don't just owe our existence to Him now. We owe all of our eternity to Him. We owe everything to Him because He... He gave up everything for us. You see, His death did nothing for the angels. And we'll get to that next week of why His, or the week after, of why He came in flesh and blood and why that does for us what it cannot do for the angels. When Jesus died on the cross, not one angel gained salvation. When He came up out of the grave, not one angel gained salvation. When He sits in the throne of heaven and He's surrounded by thousands and thousands and countless angels, not one of them is there because His death paid for their sins. Not one of them. That's you, and that's me. That's our place to worship Him. And so here's what I'm getting. Here's the challenge of this message. Shame on us for any time we've let an angel take our place because they were the, crea- the creation just like we were. Shame on us for any time we let an angel outsing us because we've got a greater reason because the cross of Jesus Christ says you're not just my creator, you are my redeemer and you've made me once and you've remade me again and I am not just my existence now but all my eternity to you. We have a greater reason to sing than the angels do. We have a greater reason to stand at attention than the angels do. We have a greater reason to be standing and ready to serve than the angels do. And God forgive us for any time that we sat down in a chair in the midst of a worship service and we became so comfortable that we thought our job was to sit when really our job was to worship And our job was to praise Him. And our job was to adore Him. And our job was to be ready to get up at moment's notice and walk out that door and serve Him. Because we are His creation. And He came to redeem us. We have a greater reason than even the angels to worship Him, to stand beside Him, and to serve Him. And God forgive us for any time we sat down and became comfortable when we thought it was somebody else's job to do our job instead. Let's pray together.